Well, good morning, everyone. Again, uh, it is so good to be with you. For those that have walked in, uh, since then, my name is Kuni Hoda, and I am a candidate um, to be ordained as a pastor in the Great Lakes Presbytery, currently serving at Christ Church, not Ann Arbor, uh, in Grand Rapids, sister church. I uh, graduate from U of M while I was here. I got to know some of the people from this church, previous pastor Kevin Chen. Uh, he's still a good friend and, and we keep in touch. Uh, so it's so good to be back with you today. As a missionary, I love talking about missiology and church planting and how the, the grace of the gospel uh, highlights different beauties uh, within the, the diversity of cultures in this world. Uh, how we see that particularly play out in Japan, though this culture of humility and this culture of deference is just a shadow of the true humility and deference we see in the gospel. Nevertheless, it is beautiful. Um, so I love talking about those different things as we see on the mission field, and of course as we see uh, within our multi-ethnic uh, um, and multicultural nation here. However, I'm not here today uh, to give some lecture on missions or missiology, or even to propose to you uh, how Christchurch Ann Arbor needs to engage in missions Uh, I'm not here to present some sort of method or process or plan. Because before we get there, we need to ask the question, what is the content of our mission? What actually makes Christian mission unique? Surely we're not the only people in the world who care about the world, who care about brokenness, who care about those who are suffering, uh, who care about improving the human condition and to seek flourishing not only for ourselves but for the world it's not just Christians who have these concerns and yet we believe as reformed and evangelical Christians not to use that in the political sense of the word but in truly the the Christian sense of the word we care about the mission of God we care about the mission of God here in our city in our state, and in our world. So what makes that Christian mission different? It's the content of that mission that makes Christian mission unique. And so the title of the message today is Our Global Witness, and I apologize, there's a typo here in um, your order of worship. It's Our Global Witness Sharing and showing the resurrected life, sharing and showing the resurrected life. And I'd like to propose to you today that what makes Christian mission unique is that it all hinges in the resurrected life that is the the animator of the mission and it is also the content of that mission. Let me start with a question. What marks a Christian? What marks a a true Christian or a true Christian church? If someone asks you, uh, what makes you a Christian? Or or how do you know that Christ Church is actually a a Christian church and not some other spiritual entity? Theologians will point to traditionally three marks of the church. One, being a proper preaching of the gospel. 
Two, a proper administration of the sacraments. Today we have the joy partaking in the Lord's Supper together. And third, a proper use of discipline. And here, by discipline, we don't mean uh, we don't mean uh, just dutifulness in our studies or everyone being hard workers. Uh, these things that we value um, as Ann Arborites, right? Uh, we don't mean uh, getting that fit summer bod by beating our body in in workout and diet, right? Although Paul does use that as an illustration for the Christian life, uh, we mean. Uh, discipline within the church uh, that seeks for the, the peace and the purity of the body of Christ. Right? So the proper preaching of the gospel, proper administration of sacraments, and proper use of discipline, these are things that we traditionally point to. However, some theologians have pointed out that this list seems to be lacking a bit. Uh, what, what's missing, might you guess? Um, theologian and, and pastor in the Presbyterian tradition, Samuel Logan, says this. Why do we not discuss a fourth mark of the church, the proper engagement in mission? After all, is that not the very call that Christ has given to his people? That we would go out into all the world, make disciples of all nations, teaching them everything that Christ has taught us, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Is this not the commission that we have received from our Savior? Of course, that is is wrapped up in these other three things. It's not separate from preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel is mission. Administration of the sacraments is part of our mission. Discipline is part of our mission as we seek to establish churches, but clearly articulated if a church is not engaged in mission, if a Christian is not properly engaged and prioritizing the, the call that Christ has given to all of his people, are we really his people if we're not being obedient to that call? I suggest to you today that a true mark of a Christian, a true mark of a Christian church, must include uh, an engagement in mission. This takes us to our text today, after a long introduction, where we see this microcosm of the church here in Acts 9. And so we transport ourselves from Ann Arbor, Michigan, to Lydda, a small coastal town in the ancient near east, just northwest of Jerusalem. And here in Lydda, we see a beautiful, beautiful expression of the church engaging in all of these things. In one sense, this church, this story is so beautiful, I mean, it basically preaches itself. I might as well just read the text and step down here, because it's a beautiful story of how God works through his people. I'd like to take this passage and to focus in on not these other characters like like Peter and the widows and the others, but to focus on this woman, Tabitha, or Dorcas, and to see how God uses her life uh, to witness to his gospel 
and engagement in his mission. With that, let's read God's word. Acts 9, uh, beginning in verse 36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please, come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Here in this story, we see the gospel of Jesus being lived out as this life of this sister, Tabitha, is shared amongst the community. You see, this this passage starts out in a very unique way. You may ask why. He says that there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha. Luke, the author of Acts, uses this descriptor, this woman, very intentionally. In fact, this is the only instance of this specific Greek word in the entire New Testament, mathetaira, which is the, the female form of the word disciple. And so Luke is, is not just saying there was a woman in Joppa named Tabitha, but he is saying this is a woman of God, a woman who has been shaped and transformed by the ministry of Jesus in her life. This story takes place approximately six years after the beginning of the church uh, on the day of Pentecost. And so if we go back to Acts 2, we remember that Peter and the other disciples were there in Jerusalem as Jews had gathered around from the whole region, and they start preaching the gospel. And it says that thousands, in fact, around 3,000 people came to faith and were baptized. These people likely returned to their hometowns after that and began sharing what the Lord had done in their life to their communities. And somewhere along the way, Tabitha came to know Jesus. We don't know if she was there on that day in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost or whether it was through the ministry of people in her community. But nevertheless, we see her ministering powerfully, not just doing good deeds because she was a virtuous woman, but because she was a disciple of Jesus. And so we we see how the Spirit of God, as He is given to the church, shapes this woman's life, and now she is engaging in mission, sharing that life that she has received in the Spirit. Tabitha's ministry was not just uh, good deeds that uh, were recorded on her account. We see actually how this impacted her community. As Peter enters into this town, 
the women in the community are, are mourning the death of, of this sister and are coming to this house bringing these relics of her love, these tunics and these garments that she made for them and perhaps for their family. I imagine uh, this fledgling community with a, a, a pillar matriarch, Tabitha, who everyone knew if you wanted to learn what love looked like, if you wanted to know what loving your neighbor looked like, if you wanted to know what sacrificial service looked like, if you wanted to know what a spiritual ministry manifested in meeting physical needs looked like, you looked at Tabitha. Whether you were the single mom struggling in your community to raise your children in a society where there were very few resources for a single woman. Whether you were the children who always could look to Auntie Tabitha for a warm hug or a fresh meal. Whether you were men in the community who would so easily get caught up in the brashness of society, let bitterness overtake your heart to grow insular and selfish, unkind. You look at Tabitha and are reminded of the warmth of the Father God. This woman is a pillar of her community. And we see that this is not just, as I mentioned, her good deeds But she was a disciple of Jesus, sharing the spirit-filled life that she had received in him. So as we look at Tabitha, we're reminded uh, not just of how God powerfully worked through her, but how God has powerfully worked through many Christians and many churches throughout the ages. We think of how the church has been on the leading edge of advocating for forgotten children in the Roman Empire, for women, for caring for the dead and for the poor, being advocates of health care and education, meeting these physical needs in addition to uh, preaching the gospel because they saw the meeting of physical needs as an outpouring of God's love and mission as we are ushering in the kingdom of Christ. We celebrate these things. And so, as we uh, zoom in into our context today, we must ask ourselves the question, how has this mission of the shared life that we have received in Jesus shape our life today? To shape your life, to shape Christ church today. Returning back to Samuel Logan, who proposed that proper engagement and mission uh, be regarded as a fourth mark of the church, he comes up with these diagnostic questions to help us think about our engagement and mission. He says, one, is mission an obvious mark of the church today? Input Christ Church or input Kunihoda, your name. Is mission an obvious mark of the church today? Does missional mentality prioritize our energies or is a maintenance mindset more or less in total control of our congregational agenda? 
Does missional mentality prioritize our energies? Or is a maintenance mindset, we just got to run our little community here. We need to maintain the ministries that God has given us. Budget is tight. We need to take care of, of the finite resources that God has given us here. This mindset of maintenance and uh, sinking into our turtle shell. Is that in control of our congregational agendas? Thirdly, and this is related to the second, do we largely operate with what is sometimes referred to as the Old Testament idea of mission? Namely, waiting for the outsiders to come into us, rather than the New Testament model of going out to them. You see how a missional mentality of maintenance, which is antithetical to a missional mentality, how maintenance leads to this mindset that we just need to do our thing and let the people come in. Certainly, we want to be a church that is welcoming for anyone who walks through the doors of our church. But that is not enough. What we see Jesus do is to go out into the broken and to the communities of sinners who are without hope. And so we go out in mission. How does Christ Church score? How do you score? Um, when I think about that list personally, uh, I feel pretty down. When I think about the Japanese church, it's incredibly discouraging. Because the temptation, obviously, is to be insular, is to put ourselves first. It's to say, how can I be generous with what I've been given when I have so little? How can I give my time to that hurting friend when I am so exhausted after a long day of work or a long day of taking care of the children? How could you expect me to go out into the community and to minister to those people when we really don't get along and we don't even like the same food? They smell weird. We make all sorts of excuses for why we are justified in our maintenance mindset, in our prioritization of self. But that's real. Um, There is no genuine human being who could say they don't struggle with that. And so if you are listening to those three questions and feel discouraged, praise God for how the Holy Spirit is working in your heart to see that He is calling us to something so much greater. So the first aspect of this call to mission in our global witness is our global witness as a life shared. However, as we already saw, this is insufficient. There's a limitation. It's certainly good to to share our lives through love and good deeds. But this story highlights one of that one of those limitations in a very painful real way to that community. You see Tabitha, though she was a pillar within her church community and one that the people adored and benefited so much from. It says in verse 37 that in those days Right when she's in the middle 
of the climax of her ministry. She was full of good works and acts of charity, but in those days she became ill and died. We don't know if this was an illness that she um, suffered through for many years or whether this came on suddenly, but nevertheless, or regardless, this happened right as she was in the midst of a very fruitful ministry and she became ill and was taken away from their community. One of the limitations of our mission as a life shared is that we die. We are finite. And certainly it's not just death that pulls us away from our ministries. Mental health turns. Take people out. Uh, Broken families. Difficulties in work. Various things that pull us away from our communities. Right? We are extremely limited as finite beings, as broken vessels, if you will, borrowing from Second Corinthians, broken and cracked jars of clay, we're limited in our mission. We even see this on a societal scale. Right? Wealth is certainly one metric of human progress and human flourishing. Um, but even secular researchers, secular sociologists will say that it's not a uh, direct correlation with happiness. The wealth um, or economic human flourishing does help in the really acute situations or those who are severely impoverished. But as wealth increases, you know, and happiness does increase to an extent, uh, you know, for whatever it's worth, you know, these um, secular matrix of happiness. But as wealth increases, as GDP increases, the overall happiness rankings of those societies actually begins to fall. That's where the U.S. is. We have an abundance of resources, an abundance of wealth, an abundance of opportunities. And yet, we are far from a happy and content nation. And we have seen that very painfully over the past season. There's a limitation to the, the physical deeds of the people of God to really promote and bring about the, the change of life that we so long for. And so that is why we see a powerful pivot in the ministry of the gospel in the story. See, our gospel witness is not only a life shared, but it is a life shown. If we return back to the text, we see that as, as Tabitha lays there, her body cold, Peter comes in and echoing the story of Jesus in Matthew 5 as he raises Jairus' daughter to life, Peter comes in too with this sister who lays there cold. And he asks all the women uh, who were there to mourn to, to leave the room, to leave Peter alone. My guess is that he did this not to make a spectacle of the occasion. He wasn't trying to bring attention to himself by showing them how he could miraculously do something. But he was there and knew very well that he was not Jesus. He knew very well that if Tabitha was going to be healed and come back to life, it would take a miracle. And so he gets down on his knees and he prays, pleading with the Lord that he would have mercy. 
And what happens? She wakes up. She comes back to life. She's resuscitated. And she gets up and looks at Peter. Can you imagine the smile on her face? The experience of disbelief. She's back. And so Peter says, Tabitha, arise. Which in likely the Aramaic phrase is just one letter off from what Jesus said to that daughter in Mark 5. And she opens her eyes. Peter gives her his hand, raises her up, and calls in all the believers that were gathered there, the men and the women, and he presented her alive. See, Tabitha encountered her greatest weakness in her death. There was no stopping her ministry within her community before then. She was an unstoppable force of love and kindness and service. Perhaps if you have ever lost a dear friend in the Lord, you may recall just that deep sense of sorrow when that person is taken away from you. And you may think, how could God take away that from me when it was so good? Is not the church worse off with this person gone? Why would a God who claims to, to be building His church and at the gates of hell would not stand against it, why would He let the leaders, the, those that are, are so God-fearing that they shape the entire community, why would God let them die? We see Dorcas in her greatest weakness. And yet, if we read till the end of the story, we realize that God allowed this incredible moment of weakness in her life to show that her greatest ministry was was not in the tunics that she made. It was not in the love that she demonstrated to her community. It was not in the way that she cared for the hurting and the needy and the destitute. That was certainly very powerful. But the most powerful act of God in this passage is when she who was dead is presented alive. And it says in verse 42 that it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. It doesn't say that many believe that Peter was a miracle worker or that Peter was an apostle, although certainly this did help to authenticate Peter's role and calling as an apostle. It said that the people in that city and in that region believed in the Lord simply because this woman was presented to them alive. This reveals a great truth of the Christian faith. You see, our greatest witness is not in how we love our neighbor. Our greatest witness is in how our life is shaped by the love of God. As we love the Lord our God with all our hearts, mind, soul, and strength, the world sees that God has done something transformative and incredible in this person's life, in your life, in the church's life. See, oftentimes um, in theological discussions, we're tempted to make this dichotomy between works and between grace, right? 
we talked about the marks of a Christian, how it is, you know, the preaching of the gospel, etc., 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 and all these things are, are works. But we know that the cause of our Christianity is certainly not our works, it's grace. We're saved unilaterally by the finished work of Christ. How does this all work together? If it's our works, then where's the role of grace? If it's by grace, then how does works contribute to our Christian experience? Although it's tempting to put them at odds, uh, we would be remiss to notice how they are inextricably related. They're not at odds. Great theologian uh, John Calvin uh, put it um, this way by highlighting this uh, essential nature of Christian deeds. Listen closely. It's a little tough, but uh, I think this will be helpful. He says, It is just as necessary that men be obedient as it is that they exercise faith in Christ. So there you see the obedience and faith. In neither case does human behavior cause justification. The Holy Spirit alone is a cause of justification. But a relishing faith, a faith that is rooted in affections for God, a relishing faith and an evangelical obedience are both essential conditions of justification. Essential nature of faith is an act of giving to God, not an act of getting from God. We see that the, the, the sharing of life and the presenting of life as we have been given in the mission is exactly that. It is a giving to God. We don't love in order to get something from God. We love because we have been given so much abundantly. And so our worship, our faith as we understand it, is not simply uh, this moment here on Sunday morning where we sing praises to the Lord and offer up prayers to Him. Our worship of God, our giving back to God, is our whole lives. Our faith and our obedience, these cannot be separated. If we return back to this story, we realize that all of this holds together Because it is the life that has been given. We see how the Spirit transforms disciples of Jesus to present the life of Christ through their reception of this resurrection life. Returning to Tabitha, the greatest testimony of her life is what God did when she was dead. Are we not a gathering of people who were once dead in our sin and transgression. Perhaps you're here today. You walked through these doors and, man, you feel like a zombie. Sometimes I feel that way. Where if I didn't have to, to be an usher or if I didn't have to preach or if I didn't have to play music in the worship service, if I didn't have to set up the chairs... I don't know if I'd make it to church. Perhaps you've had Sundays like that. And perhaps, if you're like me, you have felt as if that very experience of death, spiritual death in your life, completely disqualifies you 
from engaging in the mission of God. How dare I share the love of God with someone when I don't even know if I believe it myself? How dare I call this person to a walking in step with the Spirit and holiness and repenting of their sins when I, I can't get my act together either? How can I go to the ends of the earth to share the gospel when I struggle with doubt so much? When I'm tempted by all of the the sexy philosophies of the world. If our global witness was up to us, was up to dead bodies, the church would be hopeless. The world would be hopeless. But the reason why the dead bodies, the dead Tabitha is an incredible witness is because it's not up to her. The Holy Spirit comes in power and breathes new life in her. And through her death, as she is raised to newness of life, God proclaims His grace to the watching world and draws many to faith in Him. I urge you, people of Christ Church, as you consider... Are we being obedient to the mission that God has given us? Is our church marked by a missionary mentality to go out into the world and to love people both in word and in deed? As we consider these things, the most important thing of all is to be rooted and to be drawing from that resurrection life that is ours in Jesus. If you are a believer and trust in Christ as your only true life, then this is great news and great joy that we are called to this mission. However, if you are sitting in the pews today and wondering, I don't know if that's me. I don't know about that Jesus. Maybe you're like one of the widows who were in that room who have benefited from the good works of the Christian community, but aren't too sure about this whole Jesus guy. I urge you to pray that the Lord might show you that quality of life that is only available to us and to you in the gospel. Because it's not about the deeds, it's about the newness of life that God calls us into, bought by His blood and by His grace. Let me close in prayer. God, uh, we thank you that though we were once dead in our sins and in our transgressions, you have brought us to life by the blood of Jesus. You have made us new. You have taken our hearts of stone, given us hearts of flesh that beat with your Holy Spirit pulsing through our veins. Lord, and that our obedience to your mission, it's not up to us, because if it were, our frailty and our finitude would surely have led to the demise of the church ages and ages ago. And yet, God, we recognize that though we wrestle 
daily with that darkness, with our brokenness, with our sin. Lord, we thank you that our stories are not finished. We thank you that Tabitha, for her, death did not have the last word. For that community, her death did not have the last word. But God, you were there. And certainly, as we are part of that story as well, that we can trust that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord surely will cover the earth as the waters fill the sea. So God, as we go out this week, uh, would you call us to be faithful uh, to this mission that you have given us, to share the life we have been given, and to ultimately display that resurrected, spirit-filled life that is ours in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.